0: problems in the church at Corinth, and then he answers a series of questions that they had for him. And Paul is speaking here in chapter 3 in the context of the first problem at the church in Corinth, and that was a problem of divisions. And having told them that there are three kinds of people in the world, there is the natural man, chapter 2 and verse 14, there is the spiritual man, chapter 2 and verse 15, and then there is the fleshly Man or the carnal Christian in chapter 3 and verse 1 after saying that he then lets them know which category they are in look at chapter 3 and verse 3 for you are still fleshly there's the natural, the spiritual, and the fleshly and you're fleshly now how can he say that? well because the primary symptom of a carnal Christian is divisiveness look at the rest of verse 3 For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? I was in an elevator in the hospital the other day, and a grandmother was there with her two grandkids. They were fighting over who would get to press the button. I just wanted to reach over them and do it myself because we were going nowhere. But that's the way kids are because they're childish. But you see, when someone is old enough to be an adult and they're still acting like a child, that's tragic. And that was true in the church of Corinth. Paul says in verse 1 that they were old enough in Christ to be spiritual men, but Paul had to speak to them like they were infants like they were babes. They were fighting over their favorite preacher. I have Paul, I have Apollos. That's like you saying, I like James, but I don't like Dan. Or I like Patrick, but I don't like James. That was going on in the church of Corinth. And as Paul is addressing this issue, he gives us some great insight in chapter 3, verses 5 to 9, on how God grows a church. And I want us to see three components of that this morning. First of all, the people God uses in verse 5. One of the characteristics of carnal Christians is that they are either exalting human leaders or discarding human leaders. They are either putting their leaders on a pedestal or they are knocking them down to size. They are either worshipping them or criticizing them. So to these carnal Christians, some of whom were exalting Paul and some of whom were discarding Paul, he gives the proper perspective in verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now notice two characteristics of the person God uses. First of all, he uses Servants. Paul says that he and Apollos are servants. That's our word for ministers. It's a Greek word that means table waiters or busboys. One of the weddings I did last weekend, a lady came up to me and said, "Uh, what do I call you? Father? And then she stopped and I think she realized... I was Protestant, so she said, no, 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 that's not right. Reverend. And I said, well, i tell you what, you can call me Dan. And she kind of gave me a funny look. You know, if you want to give me a title, call me busboy. That's our busboy. Because that's what the word minister means. It's a servant who's going around to the tables, cleaning up and taking care and serving other people. In fact, reverend is only used one time in Scripture. It's used in Psalm 111.9, and it says, Holy and reverend is his name. I see some pastors with rev on their license plate. I'm kind of like, not me. Don't call me reverend. That's his name. That's the King James Version. In the other versions, it says, Holy and awesome is his name. Would you call me Awesome Dan? (laughs) See, that's God's name. Awesome is the Lord. I'm a busboy. So, the first characteristic of the person God uses is he or she is a servant. Secondly, is spiritual gifts. Notice verse 5 again. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, my translation says opportunity, but if you'll notice, if you got the New American Standard, you'll notice that word is in italics. Whenever a word is in italics, it means it's not there in the original, it's added later to try to give you the idea that the... uh, Writer here or the translator thinks you need to understand. But in the original, it's not there. The NIV says the word tasks, as God has given tasks to each one. But the original really reads as the Lord gave to each one. Now, what did God give to Paul and Apollos to enable them to serve him? Well, I would suggest it's spiritual gifts. And he's going to talk about spiritual gifts in great detail when we get to chapters 12 to 14. And we're going to camp there for considerable weeks to understand this topic. But what I want to stress this morning is this. If you are a born-again child of God, he has given you one or more spiritual gifts. Those are abilities to minister. You see, God gave Apollos the gift of preaching and teaching. And you can't give him any credit for it because God gave it to him. It's a gift. God gave Paul the gift of apostle and you can't give him any credit for that because God gave it to him. It's a gift. So Paul is saying, don't elevate a person on the basis of his position. He's just a servant. He's just a busboy. Or on the basis of his spiritual gift because it's God-given. You see, if a person has had an effective ministry for the Lord, or in your case, if a person has had a real impact on your life spiritually, maybe they led you to the Lord. Who's responsible for that? Well, look at verse 5. It says, Through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave. You see, that person that led you to the Lord is just a person through whom. You believed the Lord was the one who was giving that blessing. So don't exalt that person. He's just the instrument, he's just the tool. I'd be like you going and having surgery, and I ask you, How was your surgery? and you say, My surgery was great. You should see the scalpel that did my surgery. It's beautiful. Or if you build a house, and I say, That's a lovely house, you should see the hammer that built my house. Well, no. You see, when you believe, you may thank the person through whom it happened, but you exalt the Lord because He made it happen. You see, that person is just a servant who has been given a spiritual gift by God. And if that person is really a servant who is truly gifted by God, he will not want you exalt him. So the person God uses is a servant using spiritual gifts God gives, which I might add includes all of us. We all have spiritual gifts. Not everyone can do the same thing, but everyone can do something. So let me stop and ask you, are you a person God uses? What is your spiritual gift or gifts? You say, well, Dan, I'm not sure what my spiritual gift is. Okay, then I'll ask you the second question. Are you a servant? Are you serving? Because the best way to discover your spiritual gift is to get out there and serve and try things and figure out what it is. So if you have a servant's heart, I am convinced God will show you what your spiritual gift is as you're grabbing opportunities and saying yes to opportunities to serve. That's the kind of person God uses. Second, we see the process God uses in verses 6 and 7. And this is a hot topic today. I think there's probably a book written every day on church growth. And when you talk about church growth, there are two measurables. One is numerical growth, taking a church from 250 to 500. That's the easiest to measure, because you just count people. The second measurable is spiritual growth, developing immature Christians into mature Christians. Now those two measurables are a big debate today. People want to know which is more important, numerical growth or spiritual growth. And you will find people arguing adamantly on both poles. Numerical growth, spiritual growth. Well, I am convinced that the two are not intended to be mutually exclusive. In fact, I am convinced that those two measurables are inseparable. You cannot have true numerical growth that lasts unless you have spiritual growth. Now, you can get a crowd of people in a room, but you cannot have true numerical growth that lasts unless you have spiritual growth And whenever there is spiritual growth, guess what? There will always be numerical growth. All you have to do is read the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 it says, And the Lord was adding to their number, that's numerical, those who are being saved, that's spiritual. Now, what is the process God uses to accomplish true growth? Well, Paul uses an agricultural analogy to illustrate it. Look at verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now, he doesn't tell us here, but what is it that Paul was planting? And what is it that Apollos was watering? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark 4.14 when he says, The sower sows the word. God's process for growing his church is planting and watering the word of God. And preachers who don't do that are growing something, but it's not God's church. Now, there are two distinctives that stand out in this process. Number one is diversity. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. There is a diversity of roles in the process. Now to apply this, we can look at it in terms of the process of salvation. I think that scripture indicates there are four steps in salvation related to the farming illustration. Number one is plowing. If you're gonna make a garden, you don't just throw your seed on the ground. First of all, you cultivate the ground, you plow the ground, you Tear it up to get it ready for the seed. Jeremiah 4:3 says, break up your fallow ground. Now, how do I do that? This is really the work of the Spirit of God in somebody's life, but how can I contribute to plowing in another person's heart, in another person's life? Well, I think that happens when you build relationships. When you make friendships with unbelievers. You are breaking down walls of barriers. They may be saying, well, Christians, I don't trust Christians. And you build a relationship with them and you show them that you're someone who can be trusted. You show them that you're someone who cares. Maybe you help a neighbor move into the neighborhood. Maybe you visit a coworker in the hospital. Maybe you watch somebody's kids for them. You're caring for them. You're, you're plowing. You're preparing the ground. When you do that in someone else's life. And then the second step is planting the seed. That's telling people the truth of the gospel. That's sharing your testimony. People always ask you questions about your life. All you have to do is tell them the most important thing in your life how you came to know Jesus Christ and he, how He is the priority of your life and your family's life. That's your testimony. I had an email this week from a girl who came to our church last Sunday for the first and only time. She said, I picked your church because it was so big and I thought I could come in anonymously and just sit there. The email was from Amberly Nobody. And at first I thought, well, maybe it's just junk mail. But it wasn't. She said in the email, I'm broke, sick, alone and I want to die." And then she asked me a question. She said, somebody told me one time that we're all born spiritually dead and I seem to be experiencing that spiritual death. Is that true? She's out in Utah. So I had the privilege this week of writing her an email telling her the bad news. Yes, you are spiritually dead but then telling her the good news, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Jesus specializes in raising people from spiritual death into spiritual life. And she emailed me back, so we're continuing a conversation, and hopefully when she gets back in this area, I'll get that opportunity to speak with her in person. But that is planting the seed. See, you may be saying, I'm a failure because I keep sharing the gospel and I see no response. Well, those of you who have a garden, do you throw your seed down one day and expect a plant the next day? No. You throw down your seed and you have to wait and wait and wait for that to happen. So you don't know what God is doing. You simply do your job. You plant the seed. And then the third step is watering. Watering. Watering is just nourishing the seed that has been planted. Whenever I share with someone, I never, have, I never know whether they've already heard the gospel or what stage they're at in, in, in God's work in their life. In fact, that's why one of the first things I do when I talk to somebody about the Lord is I listen. I ask them, well, what... What's your background? Where are you at in your spiritual journey so I can hear what has happened in their life already, what they understand about the gospel already so I know where to come into the situation? Do I need to plant the seed or do I need to simply water the seed that's already been planted there? We have faithful Sunday school teachers who water and water and water every week. And those of you who have kids who are being raised in this church can be so thankful that they're faithful. They continue to water that seed and water that seed and water that seed. We've got uh, people in children's church right now watering the seeds in your children's lives. What a great ministry to water and water and water, to nourish that seed. You can do that in other people's lives. You never know how you're contributing to the process. I was out in Denver when I was 20 and uh, a fellow watered the seed in my life he didn't even know it I was in a restaurant we were working and we were eating our lunch in a restaurant and I happened to look across the restaurant and I saw a fellow sitting at the bar by himself and they brought his food and I was under conviction by the spirit of God and I watched this guy bow his head and give thanks for his food in that restaurant out in Denver and I thought you know He's not with anybody. Nobody knows who he is. He wouldn't have to do that. That seems very embarrassing to all by yourself, bow your head, to humble yourself and say thank you for your food. And and that guy didn't know I saw him. He wasn't doing it so that I would see him. But he was watering the gospel seed in me because he was showing the evidence of genuine faith. You're doing that throughout your life. You're watering the seed in people around you, they're watching you. If you've told them your testimony, they're watching you. And whatever you're doing is watering the seed in their life. And then the fourth step is harvesting. That's when someone comes to faith in Christ. You know, I get the privilege of leading a considerable number of people to the Lord. And most of the time, they tell me about people who have plowed and planted and watered and prepared them for that moment. I'm just harvesting. I'm just harvesting the labors that many other people have already put in. I was leading a Bible study one time, and usually when we would have Bible studies among college students, we would go around the room because we would often have visitors, and we would give our name and something like, well, what'd you have for breakfast, or "You know, what's your favorite movie, or something. This particular night, it was... The question was, what's your name, and how long have you been a Christian? We went around, and people gave their name. We came to a girl who was a visitor, and she spoke up and said, my name is whatever, and she said, that's what I came for tonight. I came to be a Christian, and I got to sit down with her after that Bible study and lead her to the Lord and find out that someone had planted the seed in her life. Many people were watering. There were people praying for her, contributing to that, and then came the harvest. You know why a lot of people don't witness? Fear of failure. Well, if that describes you this morning, let me offer you this encouragement. It's a process. You may be a waterer and not a harvester. You see, you're contributing just as much to someone's eventual salvation as the person who plants and the person who harvests if you're a water it's a process there's diversity in that process and then the second encouragement is it's God's work to cause the growth you see the results are God's business if you have ever led anyone to Jesus Christ did you take credit for it did you say look what I did I saved that person Well, by the same token, when you witness to someone and that person doesn't accept Christ, you can't take the blame. If you have shared the gospel, if you are watering, you are doing what God has asked you to do, the growth is His business. So we can look at this in terms of salvation. Let me also say this, that we can look at this in terms of spiritual maturity. Which I I think is probably the emphasis here because that's what Paul is addressing in the first four verses. So when Paul says, I planted, he's not saying I shared the gospel and nobody got saved. Paul led hundreds of people to the Lord. When he says, I planted, he's saying I brought people to the Lord. That was really his calling. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a church planter. He said in Romans 15 20, I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Paul was a foundation layer. He went in and led people to the Lord and laid the foundation. Apollos was a teacher. In fact, he's one of those teachers that, that the Bible talks about in Acts 18. It says he was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures he came into Corinth after Paul and built on the foundation Paul laid so Paul planted got people saved and got the church started and then Apollos watered he was a teacher who came in and equipped the saints so that they would grow and be able to serve themselves and his point is there is diversity in the process One person doesn't do it all. (coughs) Sorry. Secondly, the second element in the the process is dependence. And Paul mentions three contributors to the process of the growth of the church in Corinth in verse 6. Notice, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Paul says, I just threw out some seeds. Apollos came along and watered. But who's really behind it all? Who gets all the credit? God. And his point is this. Don't exalt human teachers. Don't divide over human teachers. Rather, unite around the Lord. And then notice verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. What's the planter? He's nothing. What's the water? He's nothing. What's God? He's everything. He causes the growth. You don't get a drink of water and glorify the faucet. You don't look at a beautiful painting and Exalt the brush. You see, we are just tools in the hands of God. And it's all God's work. And we should be united in worship of Him. And we should be united in our dependence upon Him. I can't think of an occupation that is more dependent than farming. A farmer takes, you know, he breaks up the ground. He goes out and takes hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars worth of seed, and he just throws them on the ground and leaves them there. And unless he has an irrigation system, he has to depend on rain to come. He's praying for the weather, as James said earlier, that he'll get some rain on his field so that his seed will survive. He is totally dependent upon God to cause the growth. And this passage tells us that that's the same process God uses to grow his church. There is diversity of responsibilities. One person plants the word, another person waters the word. And there is total dependence upon God because he is the one who causes the growth. And then thirdly, the partnership God uses in verses 8 and 9. Now some of us get points 1 and 2. We're the right person doing the right process, but that's not enough. There are a lot of people serving and doing their unique, unique job <laughs> excuse me, whether it's planting or watering that totally miss this third point. And I would suggest to you that this third point is essential. You see, to grow his church, God not only uses the right kind of people doing the right kind of process, he uses them in partnership. This is not an individual event. It's a team sport. And I want you to notice four aspects of the partnership God uses. Number one, it's a united effort. Look at verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Paul says the teachers that you're dividing over, Apollos and Peter and Paul are all one. And you ought to be one too. You see, we're all teammates. There's a term today used by our military and that's the term friendly fire. It's kind of a nice way of saying we shot our own soldier. I would suggest to you that that happens too much in the church today. And it's not accidental someone said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. We don't stop with wounded. We'll we'll shoot anybody for whatever reason. There's far too much competition among churches today. And this passage says we're one. Whatever your job is in the church, it's a bigger church than Cape Bible Chapel. It's a universal church that God is building, and we all have our different part in that church. But we should be excited when God blesses somewhere else because that's God's church. I did a funeral last weekend and was asked to do the funeral. I didn't really know what I was getting into. They said, well, we want you to do the funeral because we want you to give the gospel. And so I came to do the funeral and realized that the lady's pastor was there. But they didn't ask, the family didn't ask her to do the message. They asked her to read a poem. So I was kind of in an awkward situation. She was, there. she was there, which is maybe why they didn't ask her. But anyway, she got up and read the poem, then I gave the message, and it was interesting. Afterwards, you know, you kind of stand by the casket, and people walk out, and the people from her church came out, and they hugged her, and then they walked by me like this. Like, I got the cold shoulder from them, you know? i like... I didn't volunteer to do this. You know. I'm, I, I'm just doing it because the family asked me and I shared the But there was this obvious sense of territorialism. This is our church and you're not our pastor, so just because you shared the gospel, we're not even going to shake your hand. And that's sad. Because God is doing big things in this world. And every minister is just a busboy doing a little part in that process and Paul says we're on the same team we're teammates and then second there's a unique reward look at verse 8 again he who plants and he who waters are one but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor now Paul is saying to this divided church don't you worry about giving us rewards you're not the ones who give rewards God is and God will you see in ministry we're one in responsibility we stand separate notice verse 8 again it says but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor see when it comes to rewards it's an individual thing based on whatever God has blessed you with spiritually and your responsibility and calling by the Lord. Now what does God base rewards on? Well, look at the end of verse 8. It says, according to his own labor. I want you to get this. It doesn't say according to his own success. Jesus is going to say, well done, thou good and successful servant. No. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, I labor for the Lord. I'm not responsible for success. God is. Verse 6 says, he's the one who causes the growth. Now, success is usually a sign that my labor is honoring to him, but not necessarily. God has many times used servants who failed to even do significant things. So we get a unique reward. Now let me clarify here that reward is not salvation. Reward is based on your labor. Salvation is a gift. And we're going to see that next week, but I want you to see it this morning just briefly. Look down at verse 14. He says, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. See, God bases your reward on what you have built. The ministry. Have you built something that lasts, or have you built something that's only temporary because you built it in your own strength? That's what reward is based on. But even the person who loses his entire reward because he did it in his own strength for his own glory still gets saved. And so there's a difference in reward and salvation. I want you to understand that so you're not confused when he talks about reward for our labor. That's beyond our salvation. It amazes me that verse 7 says we're nothing and that God causes all the growth and yet he still rewards us. That's grace. And then thirdly is the unequal yoke. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. Now the idea of an unequal yoke normally has a negative connotation. A yoke was a harness to put two animals in to pull with. And you didn't put an ox and a donkey together because they wouldn't cooperate. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, we're told not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. If you marry an unbeliever, you will spend the rest of your life pulling in two different directions. You say, well, Dan, why did you use unequal yoke here? Because it says we are God's fellow workers. That's like hooking a thoroughbred with a chihuahua. We are yoked together as fellow workers with God, and he's doing all the work. I don't watch much pro basketball. I love basketball, but I don't like pro basketball that much. But I happened to watch the end of the game between Cleveland and Detroit, the fifth game. I think it was Thursday night. Did you see that? LeBron James scored 29 of his, la- his team's last 30 points. And they won the game. It was, it was amazing to watch. His teammates just gave him the ball and stood back and watched him go. In fact, three of them fouled out during that time and nobody even noticed because they were insignificant to what was going on. But at the end of the game, all the Cavalier players got to say, we won. Why? Because they were teammates of LeBron James. Well, we get to say, we won. Why? Because we are fellow workers with God, even though I'm the chihuahua that he's carrying along because I can't even keep up. And then fourthly is an unusual identity. Look at the end of verse 9. Paul says, you are God's field, God's building. I like that. Paul doesn't say, you're my church. You're Apollos' church. He says, you're God's church. Literally, you're God's cultivated field. You are God's building. And then he's going to develop that analogy in the verses that follow, and we'll look at it together next week. But what I want you to see right now is that one clot of dirt does not make a field. And one brick does not make a building. We are intricately partnered with each other and with God. So how does God grow his church? He uses people with a servant's heart using their spiritual gifts that God gave them. He uses a process of diversity and each of us doing our individual part in total dependence upon God and he does so as we work in partnership with each other and with God. I don't know about you but I want us to be these kind of people and this kind of church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that reminds us that you are growing your church. And Father, I just thank you that you give us any part in this. That you call us your servants, that you give us gifts to serve you with, that you allow us to labor, even though all the growth is your business. And so, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being a part, even in the salvation of other people, to share the gospel, to to water the seed in their lives, to cultivate that in their lives, to harvest that. Father, the privilege of being a small part of that, but we realize that it's your work, that you are the sovereign God, and you don't really need us, but you have chosen to condescend, to use us. And not only do you use us, but you promise even to reward us for those inputs that we give to your kingdom. What an amazing thing. What amazing grace. And Lord, I pray that as we go from here today, that you would truly unite us as a church to challenge us individually to be doing the part that you have asked us to play in this process and to be careful to give you all the glory because you deserve it all. Awesome is your name. We thank you in the worthy name of Jesus. Amen.